Thanks for listening to coverage of the Society of Environmental Journalists Annual Conference 2019 in Fort Collins, Colorado. Thanks to all our members and supporters for making this possible. For more information on this and other sessions, look for the 2019 conference agenda at sej.org. So I'm going to start off here with some good questions as some people, you know, straggle in. Um, and so one of the things um, people often think about voting to legalize cannabis in their state because of the criminal justice system. The social justice aspect is very large. It's quite important, but um, this human element is only part of the picture. So Bruce, in your book, a lot of people that you talk to and include in that said a lot of things like, I never realized that cannabis was a zoning or a business or, you know, some variation of economic corporate, all these other types of issues. Um, they hadn't thought about it that far. And one of the things sometimes they said is, I didn't realize it was an environmental issue. So to all three of our panelists, maybe Bruce, you can start us off. What was the moment you realized cannabis is an environmental issue and how has that informed your work in the industry since? Um, thanks. Thanks for hosting the panel. This is a great panel. I, I love it. Um, I, I think that my realization that cannabis is an environmental issue as, as well as an economic, political, social justice issue um, came early on in my research for Weed the People, the book, um, where you, you, you essentially, I mean, we've all heard, I'm, I'm a longtime environmental journalist, and one of the ways that um, this issue used to cross environmental journalism paths was through the classic degradation of public lands with, with illegal growth, right? Just now. Nasty, nasty stuff, chemicals dumped in streams, um, this sort of thing. And, and that was really my only um, interaction with it. Uh, but then once I started looking into it, I mean, essentially, it's, it's, it's farming. It's, it's agriculture. And it's agriculture in a very strange, restrictive space. Um, and it's also retailing. And it's, it's product, uh, product management. Um, it's waste management. Um, I, I just was, I think we, have, we will touch on different aspects of how this is an environmental issue. For me, one of my hobby horses is uh, product packaging and waste. I mean, this is a product that's hugely regulated. Um, and the amount of packaging that goes into it is, is kind of insane right now. Um, so those are some of the ways that, that I started first to realize. So you want to jump in? Yeah. Um, for me, my realization really happened when, so I, in my job, I rotate through assisting different industries, and I, I work with a lot of emerging industries. And so in looking at the cannabis industry, what was really unique about it is that, it, especially here in Colorado, is it's an agricultural process that we moved indoors, right? And that creates a lot of different environmental issues. We also concentrated about 65% of the industry in Denver proper. And so in our most popular area of the state, we're adding in this new industry that has a large energy load. Um, it has a lot of water usage. It, it just has a lot of environmental impacts. And so when we concentrated it in our city center, we kind of created new additional problems. Um, we created some some possible air quality problems with the way that the, the natural terpenes that if they were out in an agricultural area, they'd be no big deal. But when we put them in the heart of our city center and co-locate them next to other types of pollution combustion emissions, we create a new problem. Um, when we when we stress our energy grid with um, each each marijuana cultivation that uses a lot of energy, um, almost equivalent to like a heavy data center. And so the these are new energy sources. We, we still have the same amount of power plants. Um, and so we just added new stress to our grid. And so there's a lot of just new environmental stressors that come about when we have this concentrated industry. And like I said, when it, it would be typically outdoors in an agricultural setting, it, it creates a lot of new issues when we move it indoors. So that was my big realization. <laughs> so. Um so speaking from the business owner standpoint, um, for us, we are one of those grows. So we have an indoor facility. And, you know, as being conscientious as a business owner, you're looking at your uh, budget and your spending and the resources that you're using. So I think there was the pragmatic thought of like, well, let's be smart about how we're using energy and let's stagger our lights and let's, you know, be cognizant of, of what we're using and the amount of waste we're putting out there. But, you know, I run legal with my husband, John. And so when we started the business, we've assumed a philosophy of the way we live all the time, which is you want to be, you know, organic or 
that's how we eat. That's how we shop. That's what we, you know, farm to table. We're kind of restaurateurs from before this. And then also sustainable. I mean, you recycle at home. Why wouldn't we have some of these same practices in our business? And so I think for us, it was um, a natural progression. And we identified it early on as a differentiator. With 380 stores around us in Denver and us just being one, we needed a way to be different from everybody else. And so we assumed that that was a natural fit because that was how we would you know, act on day-to-day anyway. Great. Thank you, guys. So then diving in, doing more of a, a shallow look, and then we'll do a bit of a deeper dive on some of these subjects. So what are some of the most intense environmental impacts of cannabis cultivation and sales? Bruce, you mentioned one already. And then what are some of maybe the lesser known and more invisible, invisible environmental impacts of cultivation and sales that perhaps people um, who don't interact with the industry very often might not know about um, uh, and only interact with potentially as a consumer? May I start? Yeah, sure. Um, Okay, so one that Bruce already mentioned is the packaging. And, you know, even understanding where the regulations around that came from, it was was being proactive, it was making sure the... uh, that it was childproof and safe and but there have been there was some repetition in the way that those regulations came together so the packaging was completely overdone and i think that's an easy one to see as you mentioned but something that i talk about a lot is um is waste uh, from the cultivation facility itself um you wouldn't believe how many plates places are throwing uh, soil or soilless media um, into a landfill and just throwing it away and not being able to compost or reuse that. And we have, um, I'm happy to say that that Colorado uh, in this past uh, rulemaking and in the upcoming legislative session will be tackling a lot of this and that rule will change regarding composting. But it was because it was in regulation and a little gray area around that, that a lot of business owners, I think, just wanted to err on the side of caution, and so they didn't go ahead and compost. Um, And then I think that there are other media and materials coming out of the grow that there's no reason for them to end up in the landfill. So the waste in packaging, yes, but also what's coming out when you're cycling through a, a cultivation phase. Yeah, I'll, I'll pick up on that, um, and let me go just a little deeper on um, on the waste issue um, because that's um, one I see like personally as both a, a writer and editor and, and a consumer in Washington State. I live um, I live in Seattle, and uh, right now in the cannabis industry, we are uh, if there's a spectrum between um, being very smart about waste and packaging and safety, we're way over here on the on the safety side and. And I, it's, it's, we all understand why that happened um, when we first passed these laws. We wanted to make sure that uh, these were childproof packages and kids would have a hard time getting into them. Um, but we're also at a, at a point where if, if you're not familiar with these products, um, I would urge you to go, go visit a store here in, in Fort Collins or, or visit visit legal visit legal. It's a much better I actually was, was just in a store on the edge of campus about two hours ago, and I bought a, a, a a pre-roll, and this is a dube tube. Yeah, yeah, yeah. This is a dube tube. If you don't know what these are, this is plastic. It holds one joint, and in Washington State, you can see these things washing up in streams and on our beaches in Seattle. This sort of thing. It's 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 just it's junk. There's no reason that I can't. I don't. I shouldn't own one dube tube to my name, <laughs> like like a water jar, right? right? And then I take it in, and they put it in there, and I go home. Um, but because of the regulatory. Uh, um, uh, environment we're in right now, uh, every single pre-roll, single joint um, needs to go out the store in in that packaging. Um, and when it comes to edibles, sometimes it, it gets even worse. There's a um, there's a lodge, uh, maker of a lozenge company in 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 Seattle where you essentially there's cardboard, there's plastic packaging, there's a tin inside of that. Inside the tin, you open the tin up, and um, each one of those five milligram lozenges is packaged within plastic itself. Um, and so if you just, you know, take the product out, mm-hmm. you have just this this little pile of trash um, that, that comes with it. Um, and I think that, you know, eventually we'll be able to relax those packaging rules. It will take time, and it, but it also will take 
work on behalf of a lot of us in the, the cannabis industry to educate those legislators, like to, to go in and talk very you know, uh, seriously about, look, here's a real issue. Um, we're doing a little overkill here, and it's it's killing us on the waste side. Um, so I'll, I'll pass it on from there. But that's, I just wanted to give you a little insight into um, what we're dealing with in terms of when we talk about packaging and waste. Thank you. Um, I will echo um, the packaging concern. I think that's one of the most visible um, environmental concerns of the industry is, is the childproof packaging. Um, and, you know, my personal philosophy on it is when I go to the liquor store, I don't have any childproof anything that I have to get through in order to get my liquor. Um, and we rely on responsible adult use. And so I, I think there's some lessons that could be learned there. But um, on the invisible side of what are you know the lesser known environmental impacts or what are the invisible environmental impacts of the industry? And that's something that I'm looking into with my research on ozone. And so um, just to back up for you guys, ozone is formed when volatile organic compounds, VOCs, react in the presence of sunlight with nitrogen oxide, um, nitrogen or NOx for short. So nitrogen oxide is combustion emissions. So anything from cars, power plants, anytime we're burning anything, when those emissions are already in our atmosphere, when volatile organic compounds are released and mixed with them in the presence of sunlight, we get ground level ozone. There's many, many sources of VOCs, many, many sources of nitrogen oxide in our state, but the main contributors to ozone are oil and gas industries and cars on the road. Um, I say that to caveat the fact that I'm looking into what is the, the cannabis industry's contribution to this ozone formation problem. Um, relatively low, can, it's gonna be relatively low compared to our traditional sources, um, definitely. But we want to know what's the extent of that impact. And so um, as the plants grow, they naturally emit terpenes, which is associated with the strong marijuana odor smell that we're all familiar with. Um, but when those terpenes, those, those are volatile organic compounds, when they're released in the atmosphere, they have the opportunity to, to form ozone. And so what I'm trying to figure out in my research is how many pounds of VOCs are emitted per pound of marijuana grown. Then we can put that into our air quality models to say, okay, of our total ozone, you know, problem in Colorado, how much is the cannabis industry contributing? And, um, I'm I'm super excited about the research you're doing. We um, had uh, uh, actually an environmental journalist. We assigned him to do a story on on the research you're working on, and it took it took a while for him to, to get to the point where he's explaining what's going on. And once he was able to do that, I'm talking to you and um, and others, but it all came together when we were, he and I were talking on the phone about there used to be that stretch of highway in Denver where when you drove drove through it, you could actually smell cannabis growing, right? You know the one I'm yeah, talking about? Yeah. Now, not so much they scrub it and everything, scrub it. Yeah, um, and yeah exactly, <laughs> exactly. Um, and so you knew cannabis was growing right there and it was so odd because like no other, I can't think of another agricultural product that we have bound into our urban core, as we have with cannabis. Because yeah. the profit it's, margins. There's the profit margins do not exist for any other agricultural product, right? You wouldn't grow tomatoes right downtown next to Coors Field. Unless people are buying those tomatoes for like you know fifteen dollars each before they go into the Rockies game, like right. Um, but cannabis has those profit margins. Um, that and zoning also played into to the the issue, and then also setbacks. So one thing to keep in mind when you look at Colorado's regulatory cannabis structure is we were the very first to legalize recreationally. Right, that was a big leap of faith. Um, and so the regulatory structure built around it was 100% focused on safety and security and no diversion to the black market. Um, we completely did not consider the environment whatsoever when creating this regulatory structure. Um, now that we're you know five years down the road um, from recreational legalization, we're sort of doing some backpedaling and changing regulations retroactively and saying, you know what, we didn't actually mean to do that. We didn't, we didn't mean to by requiring you to mix all of your plant waste with 50% non-marijuana waste. The intent wasn't to double the landfill footprint, but that's what we did. And so what can we do to make composting more accessible, make other alternatives more accessible um, so that the industry can, can thrive and, and be more environmentally friendly? <laughs> 
So I want to jump in to give a little bit more background because as the business owner, and Caitlin and I work closely on a lot of different projects. She has many very interesting cannabis projects that she's doing. But um, we have to be careful from the standpoint of saying, oh, the ozone is being affected by cannabis being grown. Because 10 years ago, we have a dog food factory on I-70, and that smells very, very bad. And you know what they're doing in the building, but there was no mention of the odor or the VOCs or what was happening. You know, there's bread, there's coffee roasters, there's a lot of stuff going on in town. And I think it's interesting to explore because, yes, you're right, lemonine, pinene, who knows in that quantity what's there. But to back up, just a couple of years ago, as a business, it was regulated that I had to have an odor control plan. In my, you know, every time we reapply for our license, we needed to let them know what we were doing to mitigate the odor coming out of our facility. So for us, we have carbon filtration, we have an HVAC system, you know, there, there's a lot that we are doing now. So when Caitlin goes to measure this, is she measuring it inside the grow, outside the grow, before the carbon filter, after? I think that it's, she's asking the question, and all questions should be asked, but just since she's asked this question and it's gotten out there, there's three articles out that I know of from our local news and then also Leafly where we have to be very careful to continue to point out all of the failings of the cannabis industry rather than, you know, the cannabis industry came together to get the composting rule changed. Like we want this to be better. Um, however, you know, I, I just, I want to make sure to give it context because right now everybody growing in an urban setting is you know, under this odor control plan. And so we are thinking about it and trying to keep up with this. But I do think the question should be asked, but it's just about how it's reported on. Like, it, it seems like it's already a problem. Yes. The way that it's been reported on, it comes across as it's already a problem. And what you're saying is, we just don't know. This is a brand new business. So yeah. we're going to explore it. And it's one of the cool things, along with other, yeah. you know, avenues that you're going down to explore really interesting and environmental it policy related to and it. it is great to know too that you know this issue that we're researching that the cannabis industry has already come up with its own solution to the problem that we haven't even quantified yet by having carbon filters in place by having odor control plans in place um, and it's required in Denver proper but a lot of we're seeing a lot of cultivations even outside of Denver where it's required adopt these best management practices in advance of any of the research or, or impacts being let out so that's one great thing that about the cannabis industry being an emerging market um, is people are really dynamic and they're open to change. And if you just show them the right way and give them the best management practices and the tools, we are seeing really high adoption rates. There's a there's a stigma aspect to this too. I mean, there's it it really is there. There's be, and I say that because there is a farmer um, out in eastern Washington. Her name is Crystal Oliver, and she has been fighting a battle um, with the Spokane County um, Air Quality Management Agency for years over um, not VOCs, not anything like this. Simply the smell of cannabis as it comes near harvest time, and and that's it. It's, it's, you know, it's, it's, uh, uh, you mentioned, you know, a, a, rent, a dog food plant, this sort of thing, right. other, other, um, odors that are out there. Uh, and you know, some people like the, the smell of growing cannabis, some people don't, um, but it's part of that agricultural environment and atmosphere. Um, but what's also layered on, layered on top of that is 80 years of, of stigma from the war on drugs and this sort of thing that, that does play a role in this. Yeah, thank you, everyone. That was a really great kind of ongoing discussion. Um, I want to kind of focus that back around on um, there's a lot of things we could talk about that are like, you know, how much in how much waste does, you know, cannabis produce? How much energy does it take? How much water, you know, does it need to grow a plant? There's a lot of those really basic things. But while we have these amazing people here on this panel, I wanted to discuss a little bit more in especially in Colorado, but also in other places, Bruce, that you've seen and had people report on what regulations have you really seen um, support? a sustainable cannabis industry and what measures have you seen businesses themselves take um, regardless of of the state regulations to really push that needle forward and um, and make kind of progress in in that way not that many uh, unfortunately um, because it costs 
it often can cost more to do something the right way. Right. And so with the exception of the um, recent waste that um, now we're going to allow for composting within the city of Denver, I think that that's something where I can speak to. There's been a a movement towards that. People just didn't feel good throwing all of that out. But, um, you know, some of the other. Well, let's look at it this way. I'm I'm one of four businesses that are certified, uh, two businesses, I'm sorry. O- uh, over four years, I'm one of two businesses that meet the city of Denver's certifiably green designation, meaning that uh, the city evaluates your resource management and um, what are the policies that you have in place on how to use energy, water, um, how are you dealing with your waste, et cetera. And so that's four years and only two companies within in the city of Denver. So, but what's very close behind that is um, people are picking up on corporate social responsibility for the cannabis industry, and they need to um, set themselves apart when it comes to marketing and differentiation. So, I feel like I've seen a lot more um, green. Uh, it's sort of like a greenwashing light advertising, like we want to look like we're responsible, but now they have to put their money where their mouth is. And so this last Cannabis Sustainability Symposium we had last Friday was the largest attendance I've seen with the most interest. And so I think that unfortunately it did take some prodding. And to be fair, as as cannabis business owners, we're dealing with an incredible amount of um sort of compliance all the way around. We have many, many regulators. Um, But I think that we're going to see it happening. And, you know, in other states like Massachusetts, where they're just now making the regulations or and the rules are just happening on the East Coast and some of these other states that are opening up, they are writing sustainable standards and, um, and addressing some of these in, in their rules and regulations and, and the uh, the compliance for the, the cannabis companies. So I think they're learning from maybe some of this overprotectiveness that happened early on, and they're correcting those moving forward. And, and it's been overall pretty fast, though, I guess, if the regulated market's only been going for about 10 years in Colorado. So overall. Yeah. I think the... the um biggest step that I've seen uh, is in the area of zoning. Um, And again, like, you know, uh, there's no faster way to send a room to sleep than using the word zoning. But (laughs) zoning is power and zoning is policy. And um, once uh, I mean, one of the things that we've tracked over the years at Leafly is this this pattern that recurs where basically a state will vote to legalize cannabis. Um, and then when it comes down to actually zoning local municipalities, counties and cities and towns, um, the local city council panics um, and says, nope, we don't want don't want don't want your weed here. Don't want marijuana here. Um, even in a town like mine, Bainbridge Island, Washington, that voted 70% to legalize, um, the people on the council, they, they panic and they don't want to be seen as, as you know, favoring drugs in any way. Um, but what happens then is you essentially eliminate vast swaths of traditional agricultural land from the the areas that that cannabis can be grown. We see this in California, where you have massive agricultural counties that will not allow any cannabis to be grown whatsoever. It's grown there. It's just not legally grown there. Um, And the more I think that you can essentially bring those counties into the legal system, um, the more that those growers can spend their time and resources on growing like legal does, like in in finding better, more sustainable um, practices, uh, because what goes along with those that opening in those rural districts is um, a general lessening of the crazy security precautions that we had early on. I mean, we were making people put up, you know, eight foot fences and um, security cameras around every every um, part of a of a grow. And like in Washington, that's generally subsided. We're no longer treating it like kryptonite. I was actually in a uh, white salmon, Washington, about a month ago, um, for a friend's wedding, and we were taking a walk down the road, and we walked by this little patch, and, and the 
farmer had a little patch of cannabis growing, and it was it was fascinating because it was like, oh wait, that's 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 cannabis. That's fat. That's kind of interesting, and it wasn't, you know, hemmed in by barbed wire as it was when when we first started. Um, so that sort of zoning and opening up agricultural lands to this farming, I think, really matters. So. I'm going to back up and give the cannabis industry a little bit of credit. Um, so it's pretty common for um, new industries, and as an environmental coach for the last nine years, um, you know, rotating through many different industries that are emergency going through or, or emerging, um, going through big um, growth spurts, things like that. We really try to look at the life cycle of a business and realize where the business is at, and typically. We leave people alone until they've they've kind of had five years of experience, um, because within that five years, you're trying to learn how to be compliant. You're trying to learn how to keep your doors open. You're trying to just, in general, how do I grow cannabis and do it right? Um, nobody's going to have time for on top of that. This is how you'd be the most environmentally friendly. They're just going to slam the doors on our face and be like, you're crazy. I'm just trying to keep my doors open. Um, and so really, we try to give business that, that five-year space to kind of just grow, learn how to be a business, and then we step in with environmental measures and kind of voluntary. Not to say that, that businesses shouldn't be sustainable from the start. Absolutely advocate that. But from a coaching standpoint, um, we've learned that they just don't really have the capacity to take on that additional, um, you know, voluntary actions. And so, you know, we really did in, in Colorado, the cannabis industry, when I, like I said, when we first legalized, environment wasn't really considered in the regulatory structure. Um, we just sort of let businesses go figure out how to be compliant, do this, you know, can we last five years as, as a market? Um, and we did. And so, you know, that's that's kind of at the point where we're at, where we're starting to build in more environmental efficiencies and look at our regulatory structure and say, okay, we were the first ones to do this. What did we get right? What did we get wrong? And what can we change to make things better? So, um, you know, when we, we've talked a lot about a plant with plant waste and having to, f to mix it 50% with non-marijuana waste and doubling the landfill. Well, one of the things that Colorado did in realizing that was said, hey, we're going to ex exempt stalks and stems from that process if they can be recovered for industrial fiber use. So basically, if we can recycle those stalks and stems that have a low THC content that aren't really going to be like a large driver for recovery. Um, let's let's make those um, exempt from that 50-50 waste rule. Uh, we also did uh, recently, uh, we're allowing for take-back programs of packaging at, at facilities to kind of address the packaging waste so those packages can be sanitized, relabeled, reused. Um, and so it's this, this a little bit of an evolutionary process of now that we've got a standardized market, we can really assess ourselves and say, okay, what's the low-hanging fruit and what changes we can make? And other states have taken different approaches regulatorily, especially when it comes to environmentalism. Um, Massachusetts and New York are great examples where they've come out right away and put environmental um, requirements on the industry. Colorado hasn't done that. Colorado's just taken a step back and say, we want to give you as much options as possible, but we're not going to force you down any one direction um, until we have a lot of you know data behind it and, and really are making a good decision for the industry and, you know, for, for the community as a whole. Um, we definitely don't want to be, you know, wishing we would, do, would have done things differently. Great. So I want to touch on one thing um, specifically that we haven't talked about yet um, that might relate to more of the human health aspect of the environment, which is the fact that because um, marijuana currently is not uh, overseen federally, um, things like pesticides and certain things that are usually overseen federally are not in that same way with this specific crop. So um, looking into this, this is kind of a maybe complex question. We can take it at a certain angle, whatever is most um, applicable, you think. Um, but, you know, what's the deal with fertilizers and pesticides with cannabis? Um, and what impact does that have potentially on human health and potentially related to consumer awareness around what they're actually putting in their bodies from the way this uh, crop is environmentally produced? Yeah, um, anybody. So, so that's a, a great point. I think nutrients and um, pesticides, specifically um, pesticide treatments, insecticidal soaps or sprays, et cetera. Um, you know, it is a different kind of crop, and it isn't FDA. Um, it isn't overseen by the FDA. 
but it's also the only crop where you grow it, and it might be used topically, it might be ingested, and it might be um, smoked or vaped, right, and and combusted or, and heated to a certain point. So you could have a pesticide that is um, completely safe to use on... Um, let's say, fruits and vegetables that you're consuming because it's going to go through your digestive system and your body is going to have no, there's no adverse reaction to it. Except that that same exact pesticide, when it's heated to 400 degrees or higher, might resemble formaldehyde. So that's like a, a hiccup, right? So you wouldn't want to use that. And I'm thinking of microbutanol specifically, something called Eagle 20. And um, so... It, this is a challenge because we can't rely on labeling and other industries to tell us. So Colorado, um, a few years back, I think it was about 2013, 12 maybe, put out a list of pesticides that you cannot use on your cannabis products. But that wasn't put out from the background and the standpoint of health and safety. That was put out of um, EPA regulates the labels on nutrients and pesticides. And if that label does not say that it's meant for cannabis or it says something like ornamental use only, well, you can't use that on cannabis because it says right there ornamental use only. And that's what they so. I think there was this um, idea in our state that, oh, now they're regulating pesticide because you really had to dig in to understand where did this list come from and how are these um, put in the, the safe, unsafe category. So there was a feeling, I think, amongst consumers like, well, um, oh, they must be looking out for us. So now we know these pesticides can't be used and they're banned. And so I feel pretty good about what they're using. But the testing isn't there to check on. You can only test for what nutrient or, or what pesticides exist. And that test has to be specific to that particular chemical compound, right? So I think that it, it early on left this feeling out there when consumers were just learning how to shop for cannabis. I mean, if you used to shop, you got what they gave you. And now you had these all these choices. And so I think there was this general feeling of it was safe now. Um, so all the more reason for cultivators to think about what they're they're cultivating and how to do that responsibly. So, um, and I can only speak to our own experience. So what we did was um, early on did not hire a master grower. We hired a gentleman from Texas A&M who grew tomatoes for Whole Foods. You can teach a scientist about one plant a lot easier than you can teach a basement grower about compliance and research and development and science, et cetera. So, um, and he started applying some of what he knew for organic cultivation to cannabis. But we had to be extra careful in that safe or not, or um, whether this is um, for use on organics or it is okay on um, certain products. We had to stop treating anything when it was in a flowering phase because we wanted to make sure that when the plant, we didn't use anything systemic, meaning that it was in the plant ever since the cloning phase. or um, And we stopped our treatments after 21 days in flower because we can't be sure. We've always erred on the side of caution. You know, we didn't carry butane extractions and we didn't carry, you know, because the research isn't there. And unfortunately, you have to be safe, but extra safe. Um, so then you start looking at different nutrients and, you know, those are primarily salts um, if we want to think about nutrients. And, and then other options for pesticide, um, sort of integrated pest management when you think about beneficial insects instead of a chemical, right? Uh, ladybugs is a beneficial insect that would attack aphids. Um, and that's not going to hurt you because you're not going to eat it. It's not going to be on the plant at the end. So you, you had, we had to find workarounds. But I think that right now, from an environmental standpoint, I'm sure there is one outside of the cultivation. But I, I think the first concern is the consumers and the health and safety of the people that are ingesting or, you know, combusting these products is how to be most careful until we know the research, right, and assume that. So I'll turn that over. Yeah. Yeah. yeah I mean, at, at Leafly, our, our, um, we, 
try to write about cannabis from a, a consumer's point of view. That's 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 our charge. There are other people who do a really much better job than we do at writing about uh, the business of cannabis. Um, but we tend to, to ask what do, what does this mean for consumers? What and patients? Why does it matter? And two years ago, we really had a lot of um, you know great debates within the office about. Uh, pesticides, when we wrote articles about pesticides, because we had to figure out why should our audience care? We, if you're going to write about pesticides, we have to find ways and, and to justify that article by communicating to the reader why they should give a damn about um, pesticides that's, that, that's on their, the leaf that they're, they're purchasing, pesticide residue and this sort of thing. Um, and that was a difficult one to uh, to answer, I mean, we did. We 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 found ways to write about it. We did more research. Um, today, sadly, um, that's no longer an issue uh, because of the vaping lung illness that's going around the country right now. Uh, people are are very aware um, and very concerned about what they're putting into their lungs. Um, we just had um, you know the dynamic you're talking about where a certain substance is okay for one use, but when you take it into your lungs, it's something else entirely. I mean, this the whole, um, uh, the, the cutting agents that are going through the illegal markets uh, around the United States is one of the things we've been focusing on for the last six weeks at Leafly, and um, and it's it's nasty stuff. It's a, it's it's tosopheryl acetate. It's a form of vitamin E oil that's FDA approved for, for topicals. It's great for your skin, um, but nobody ever imagined that people would, would heat it to five 500 degrees and take it into their lungs. And it, it does horrible things to your lungs when you do that. Um, so that's a sort of an extreme example of, of you know, working with substances where um, it, it's approved for one use, but but not for another. Um, and, and it uh, it's a sometimes a tough, a tough battle to fight. Um, but again, as you mentioned, so much about this market and this industry um, is is new, even though it has existed for decades. It has existed for decades in the form of here's a plastic baggie, of you know, looks like marijuana. You hope it is, um, and now we're in, in an age where you know we we have to del- deliver uh, reasonable, um, safe uh, products that uh, people have some assurance about. And that is that can be difficult, and it's difficult not just to deliver them. It's difficult to talk to consumers about why they should care, why they shouldn't just go in and say, "I want the the highest THC product you can you can give me. I don't care for the don't care what's in it. I just want the highest THC for the lowest price." And that's still where a significant portion of the market is today. Sadly, yeah. I, I just uh, one more comment on that too. That you know I. It is unfortunate that people are shopping based on, um, we wouldn't go into a liquor store and say like, I would like the Everclear, please, because that, um, but it's that, and this is where I kind of put on my Cannabis Certification Council board member um, hat with, with, how do they know? Because because the business says, no, we, we cultivate safely. We use or, um, organic best practice methods, or we, and that's why we went out and sought certification. It's imperfect certification, and we know that. But it's better than not having anything to substantiate what you're claiming. And there are not enough ways in nationally, I would even say, for a consumer. A consumer can't, and I'm not going to pick on Leafly, but I will. But a consumer can't go to Leafly and look at all the stores in Seattle, and there's no highlight for the ones that have, whether it's certified kind, clean, green, cannabis conservancy, any of the certifications to back that up. And so what they have to do is they have to either empower themselves and learn about all this or trust who they're buying from. But I think historically, you know, we, we know that you, you don't always trust the the, the vendor, right? You want to make sure that there's someone else verifying that. And so I think that now, and it is unfortunate because of what's happening with the vaping, there may be some additional standards that folks are looking for, and they may dig a little bit deeper because they need to be responsible for themselves. But um, I, I hope to see that. Yeah. yeah. No, I'm, and this is exactly how that happens. I mean, literally, we talked on the phone a couple yeah. weeks ago. Um, we now, I started a conversation in our Slack channel at Leafly about that sort of certification. I looked, 
look at our drop-down menu. You can look under THC, CBD, all these sorts of things. What about clean green? Can we do this? Why can't we do this? Um, what are you hearing? That sort of thing. So like you pushing back to me and me pushing back to the to the computer developers is kind of how that happens. Now I need your help in, <laughs> in talking to Leafly and, and, and backing me up on that, right? I can, I can do that. Yeah. I have an appointment yeah. with the rep next no, week. And, and so for, for us, I think too, but it's important to go back to the certifications are imperfect. But do you remember when fair trade certifications first came around or GMO? There were a lot of different symbols. You just knew to look for a, a symbol. Um, and that made you feel better. And I think then the standardization happens where you say, okay, let's get all these different certifying bodies together. Let's not use a USDA standard. Let's not use, let's develop our own standard for the crop that we're growing and look at the different ways in which it grows, outdoor, indoor, hydroponic, et cetera. But it will happen, but the, the tipping point needs to be reached. And, you know, that's when people might go and get certified because they want that additional, you know, viewing on that drop down menu. And, and I think the only thing I have to add to this is, um, you know, and watching many other industries emerge and, and go through similar lessons and things like that, is we keep, um, I don't know, <laughs> as, a, as a human race, we keep learning the same lesson over and over and over and over again. And that is the, the, the health of our environment is directly tied to our own health, right? We are directly impacted by our environment, by the things that we do to manipulate our environment. And so, you know, pesticides, fertilizer, anything we do to, to manipulate this crop, knowing that at the end of the day, it goes directly into our body. We just need to keep that in mind. And I think the cannabis industry, um, more so than any other industry, has been really dynamic at at kind of tackling those issues as they come along and modifying and really looking into, okay, we're the first, um, you know, real agricultural commodity that is eaten, is smoked, is rubbed all over somebody's body. I mean, it's pretty much any way you can ingest it. I mean, there's suppositories, there's there's inhalers I could go on, and, and I have many issues with some of those methods of delivery. Um, uh, in, inhalers in particular, I mean, you're... you're you're breathing something in and it's uh, directly interacts with that brain barrier. There's a, there's a membrane that goes directly to your brain. So if there was any contamination whatsoever in that inhaler, it's directly going into your brain. So viruses, bacteria, whatever was in that inhaler, direct exposure to the brain. Now, somebody that's immune compromised that walks into a store and says, what are my healthy options for consumption? They're going to be immediately drawn to that inhaler because it looks like traditional medicine. I don't have to smoke it. It's controlled. I don't have to, you know, as edibles go, buy the ticket, take the ride. Um, I, I can have a little bit more control over it, but not realizing that there's not pharmaceutical standards that go into the production facility of that product and is that company taking on that burden for me there's a lot of education and growth that needs to happen on both ends so just a heads up we're going to run slightly late on the moderated q a because we're allowed to stay a tiny bit late for the session because everything kind of started a little bit late and there's mostly a little meeting after but we're not going to run very late so i have one more general question to ask before we open it up for everybody because i'm sure people have some questions um and it's going to be kind of a hybrid question so answer the part you think um that you want that you want to answer really i both wanted to touch on that that concept of education um as well as looking forward into the future here um and basically that first part of the question um you could answer is you know what is the role of journalism and the media in both educating consumers and reporting on this element of the industry, potentially, as we've talked, there's a lot of different things we haven't even talked about um, in this industry that are environmentally related, human health related, et cetera. Um, and then as more and more states legalize, you know, maybe kind of what's the role there, but also what are some um, things that could go really well uh, as more states legalize that we could really improve in this industry that are environmentally related? And as we look potentially at federalization someday, what's something you think um, could both maybe be the biggest uh, thing at stake for better or for worse? So thinking about education um, for the media, as well as more and more states do this, how important is that? And how important really would that be? And what's at stake at the level of federalization. I know it's a complex. Yeah. Yeah. I'll, I'll grab this. I'll grab that journalism's role in this because that's a, that's something near, near and dear to my heart. Um, uh, journalism's role right now is to, is to give a damn, is to be accurate and be precise. Um, part of, 
part of what we do at Leafly is um, look over the work that our colleagues do, and some of it's some of it's great. Um, uh, Ricardo Baca at the Denver Post, he's no longer there, but he was an, an amazing pioneer in um, really caring about legalization and cannabis and both uh, the legal process, um, but also the, the cultural rollout um, here in Colorado. Uh, there is a reporter named Dan Adams who is at the Boston Globe, and the Boston Globe basically said, when Massachusetts legalized, we're going to take this seriously and we're going to uh, assign a beat reporter to it. Um, so now Dan's the main beat reporter there, and and there are a couple other writers who, who cover it um, fairly regularly. Um, and he does it in a, in a really, really solid professional way. Um, there are other papers. The New York Times does a shite job of covering cannabis. They, they, it, it's, 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 it's embarrassing. Um, they still think of it as a day class A topic. Um, it's, it's not for our audience. Um, the Washington Post, on the other hand, does a great job of covering it. Um, they've got a number of reporters there. Uh, Christopher Ingram, who does the, the data wonk there, um, the data blog column, uh, he does an amazing job on, on, on taking apart the latest studies having to do with cannabis or data on, on legalization. Um, but there's still there are a lot of moments where we'll, uh, I and a couple of my other editors will tweet at or call up um, journalists in mainstream publications who put out stories that are just flat wrong, and we'll have to we'll, we'll call them out on it. I mean, there was a story in in Time a couple weeks ago talking about how uh, the CDC was looking at how uh, 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 THC vapes were the primary cause of the illegal or the, the lung lung outbreak. And I basically came back at him and said, look, you have room. Use the word illegal. That's the problem right now. It's illegal market vapes. Um, and they changed it to their credit. Like, but, but stuff like that really matters. Um, and it, it matters um, when, when any journalist is, is covering this, they tend to at first, their, their first instinct is to cover it lightly, to make jokes, to put a pun in the headline, um, and to really not care about what is actually happening, what is happening with the product, with the experience, with growers, with consumers. Um, and so demanding that people in our industry take this seriously is really a, a huge first step. To say in um, in my experience, and I've I've actually experienced this firsthand. Last week, um, I was on Colorado Public Radio and also Nine News for the the air research that I do for the cannabis industry. Um, and being on the receiving side of an oversimplification um, is a little soul crushing. Um, <laughs> you know, when, um, when you, you're as a scientist, when you're spending so much of your time and so much of your effort to look into a problem and to really get it right and to be fair and to be unbiased and to just look at the data and follow the numbers. Um, it, it's really hard when, when the media uses it as an opportunity to be like, is the, is the marijuana industry causing Denver's ozone problem as the headline? Like, this is not, um, it was complete, you know, com inaccurate and almost um, scare tactics. Like, you know, just to get a reader or, or get that hook. Um, and like Bruce is saying, is this is a, this is a legitimate industry. This is a large industry. And this is an industry, too, that's it's also trying to do a lot of good and help a lot of people and, and be an alternative for, um, you know, traditional mechanisms that haven't worked for them and that have caused a lot of detriment. I mean, the opioid crisis, um, you know, there, there's kids out there that rely on this product for, for seizures that nothing else have, has worked for them. Um, and so to support the industry in the right way, and I just think as you guys as journalists, is really just, you know, whatever your feelings are about the industry one way or another is just to be un unbiased and capture what's really going on and give it that fair um, lens to look through and don't use it as an opportunity to to shock and awe. Um, you know, in my work, uh, being an environmental coach, I, I love working with cannabis because and, and breweries, too, because all of a sudden I have all these people listening to me that I can teach them about climate change. I can teach them about ozone. I can teach them about environmental impacts using a topic of of beer and marijuana, which is something that they really like. And it's exciting and, and it's a learning opportunity. But we also have to be careful to keep things within the bounds of reality and, and not um, oversimplify. 
<laughs> so um, I, yes and yes to the media. I think it's very important about how everything is. You know, I, I felt the same way about the vapes. We've seen sales drop even in our store, and people asking us questions about vapes. I'm like, it's the vapes that are sold on the illegal market. Like that was very important to include that every time they talked about it, because what it does is help show you that the regulated market is more careful, and that's why it's a good thing for us, right? So, but. You guys covered most of the media. I think there's, I want to touch on consumer education because not only are we starting at someone might not know anything about it, right? Just blank slate. We're not starting with blank slate. We're starting with years of stigma, um, incorrect information, um, it, one bad experience one time in high school when someone gave me something when I was drunk or like you just, you go back and, and you're not, you're, you're fighting against um, sort of the the way that the industry was condemned for so long and made to, you know, drugs are bad and marijuana is one of them and it's a gateway. So you have to get past that and then you get to zero and, and it's teaching everybody about the different strains and about the different experiences and how um, using it in different ways is going to affect them. And But it's also letting them know that there is some trial and error. We, you know, some people love tequila and some people hate beer and some people just absolutely can't drink brown liquors. And how do we find all these things out? You find it out likely through an experience that you didn't love. And there's not when when people talk about alcohol, they don't talk about it the same way they do cannabis. And yet it's so dangerous and it kills people every day. And, you know, but without the stigma, it's allowed to sort of sneak by so many other areas. So I think consumer education is important. I do. I appreciate that Colorado has used some of the tax dollars to do educational campaigns. Um, where, where are the basics? You know, where can you smoke it and be careful and wait an hour after an edible? And but that means we're getting there. And so I think that if more states adopt that, maybe having their own programs and then perhaps supporting other programs, um, that that'll go a long way because we have to correct incorrect information that people have already learned. Great. Okay. So I really want to focus on Q&A from the audience at this point. Just a reminder, uh, we can go to 3.35 or so um, instead of 3.30, so we got a good 20 minutes. Um, and a reminder, SCJ members ask first, followed by working journalists. Please identify yourself before you ask your question. Um, and no speech making, please, or you will be interrupted immediately by myself. Um, and then we're going to ask these guys to, <laughs> you don't want to say that, um, <laughs> ask these guys to just repeat the question that you asked so it's recorded in the microphones. Just a, a nice reminder. So let's go right up here in the front. Yeah, so um, a part of it is that, so think about um, Colorado voted in cannabis, and then we were going to have a medical market, and where was that going to happen? Denver is one of the more liberal spaces, right? If you look at our map, and the, more, and the rural areas in Colorado, so the urban areas are typically... Um, we'll say more liberal. And the rural areas of city councils are a little more on the fence about that. So I think that be, that's part of why it started in the city. I mean, we, you know, it's we know that if this was legalized nationally, there would be certain states and certain areas in certain states where a majority of this crop would naturally come from. But we're trying to sort of reverse engineer how this happens. So you know, Denver says okay, and you have to have it enclosed, and this is what it has to look like. And then in the state, they started opening up other options. And then there was outdoor, heavily secured and protected. And when that came on and they started giving out cultivation only licenses, that very much changed. Um, what the market looked like here. Another reason is something called um, vertically integrated businesses. So Colorado started out with a vertically integrated cannabis uh, licenses. That meant that whatever we grew, we had to sell 70% of it. That was the threshold they gave us. And we couldn't wholesale or sell to anyone else any more than 30% of it. So you had to be attached to a store. And you had... so again, that more urban area. So our grow and our store are actually attached. Um, literally, and you didn't have to be, you could be down the street or somewhere else. But so for us, there was the vertical integration model. And that's how it started. So that's 
sort of what we had in, in the beginning. It is changing. There are standalone cultivation licenses. There are now huge grows in southern Colorado because it's an economic driver. It's jobs. It, they're buying up land. I'm, I am in a warehouse district that when we moved in there, there was nothing going on. And now those empty buildings are filled with uh, marijuana um, sort of an infused uh, and processing facilities or cultivation facilities. So in some way, it does energize um, an area. And I think in, in rural parts of Colorado, they've seen these big grows doing that. You know, there's some thoughts on Humboldt, but, um, you know, I know that the, the laws are different in California. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Okay. So in the, in the back in the middle? Yeah, I was just wondering if you could give the Can you ID yourself really quick? Yeah. No, um, I love that you asked that. And so when we set up legal, we try to be as um, much of a resource to our regulators. And um, so we have tours all the time to give people this information, okay? Because it's okay to not know it. Um, so primarily, I would say, yeah, you know, I don't know if we use more energy or water than uh, orchids or something else that might be indoors. Um, so I can't speculate to that question. But um, I know that for us, in cannabis, there's typically um, funguses or mites that you might have, something called powdery mildew. If you grow zinnias, it happens at the end of summer, it covers the leaves, kind of looks like dust. Um, these are, are natural spores, these funguses that are in the air anyway. If you have the right conditions in your cultivation facility, if it's too damp, if there isn't a good dehumidification system, it can affect your plants. If you keep the climate just so, even if that spore is there, hopefully it doesn't take on on your plants, right? So primarily funguses, um, and I think there are, you know, aphids, spider mites, these are very small microscopic um, sort of insects, but they do damage the leaves, they damage the plant with their webbing, and they can get into the, the buds and the flower. So that's, I think, what people are primarily fighting, yes? Yeah. We've heard all those. Yeah. And uh, Michigan... Uh, your adult use market is opening up sometime early next year. You're in for a very exciting year. <laughs> Good luck. <laughs> so um, for us, some people will say, well, it costs so much to get certified. It doesn't cost that much to get certified. It costs a lot to grow that way. So it's very expensive for us to grow for a pound, um, what compared to someone growing outdoors might be. And we can't, unfortunately, always command the high price. That's changed. It's a very competitive market. And with people racing for the highest potency for the cheapest price, it's it makes it, again, tough. For us, I would say it's the money that we put primarily, and this is going to sound funny, into human resources. We have more people growing or working in our cultivation facility. And then uh, because we want eyes on plants, we still hand water certain rooms so that they can see, they can call something that doesn't look healthy. Um, we are constantly trimming back extra leaves, trying to create that very open, um, airy, so that there isn't um, uh, moisture so what that means is I have less plants in a room than somebody else. And that means that that room yields less for me. So that brings my costs up again. Um, I And then pesticide and pesticide treatments, like our biological pests, the sachets that we hang on the plants, those are very expensive. And you use those pr um, beneficial insects, and you hope they ne you never have to use them. But the next round, you have to buy another sachet to hang on a plant. And these are, um, these are like predators. So, so great question. These are predatory mites that will come out to attack aphids or other spider mites. And so a sachet looks like, remember the potpourri that you might put in a drawer in a closet with a little tag on the top that you hang around the plant? That's what it looks like on the plant. And so constantly buying those for rooms can be pricey, but worth it because you're using something that's natural in lieu of more chemicals or more treatments. Um, so I think it's just, it's human resources, it's the amount of space, it's the amount of cleanliness that we have to adhere to, very careful about how people move through the space, and then the nutrients and pesticides that we use. And those nutrients, they are more exp expensive overall. Um, the difference is we can't relay that price difference to the consumer. I pay a ridiculous amount for raspberries because I know they're organic, but 
It's not like that in cannabis. So we're still fighting that same price battle. So I think if you have a lot of investors, if you have a big, these large cannabis licenses that are out there, um, they have to look at the bottom line and the return on investment. And um, so they don't always have the leeway to say, no, we're gonna, it's going to be a little more expensive, but that's what we want to do. Um, so if that helps. And if you're in town, you call me. I'll give you a tour. I'll teach you. <laughs> Great. Um, I want to go over on this side of the room. I want to grab Chris over here. Did you have a question? Yes. Hemp is so new um, it, that we're just you've got an open field waiting for you and as far as hemp goes. Like, it's really exciting to report on hemp, and I hope you're able to do it because it's, it's out there waiting for you. Um, you know, it just the farm bill passed in December. Um, people just put in their, their crops in the spring, and now it's October. Um, and, you know, one of the things that I've heard from a number of people in the hemp space is it's not just cross-pollination. It's, it's issues like um, stressors on their hemp plants, bumping the THC level up beyond the limit. And it's, it's, it's really tricky. You know, you got that issue, you got the issue of um, then harvesting and transporting your, your hemp crop in a legal way so that the cops don't stop you and assume you've got a truck full of illegal marijuana, right? All that sort of stuff. So uh, that's, hemp is a really, really exciting thing to be, be writing about now. And, and um, uh, Good luck. It's out there. I mean, I, I, we, can't, we can't cover hemp. We just don't have the resources at Leafly. We've got to stick to what we, what we do. Um, but we get calls, a lot of calls, um, from people wanting to know num data on the hemp industry, how many people are growing it, how many jobs are out there, that sort of thing. Um, and, and we don't have it. There are um, hemp-specific trade publications that, that do cover it. Um, and I would, I would get in touch with them there. Um, specifically, uh, I mean, Nebraska could be really interesting. Um, and you're close enough, boy, I'd look into what's going on in, in Oklahoma um, with the medical cannabis market down there just exploding um, and whether there could be interesting implications for neighboring states. So, yeah. To get directly at your question, um, here in Colorado, since marijuana is primarily grown indoors and hemp is primarily grown outdoors, we're not seeing a lot of cross-pollination issues between the two crops. Um, what we're seeing mostly, you know, from outdoor cultivation of hemp, um, the largest, you know, impact that I'm seeing at my office and what I get the most calls about is the odor and also people just being unfamiliar with the look of the plant because hemp plants look like marijuana plants. And it got, um, the way it was legalized, it got legalized just like any other agricultural crop. It might as well be corn. And so that corn or that hemp can be grown right next to a school. It can be right up next to a residential area. And so we're starting to see more and more complaints related to that of people just not understanding what hemp is, how it was legalized, that it's different from marijuana. Um, that's that's a big driver there is educating the public on, on, on how it's different and how the regulatory structure is different. Um, and then, you know, one of the largest impacts we're seeing environmentally from the hemp industry is the extraction, the CBD extraction in a marijuana facility to make concentrates. That's a highly regulated process, very, very regulated. Um, hemp, do whatever you want. Um, so we're seeing, um, you know, high, high amounts of, of solvent use, ethanol, propane, butane. Um, also, hemp is not restricted to the solvents that they can use for extraction because, again, there's no regulatory structure. So we're seeing some folks use hexane. For instance, hexane is a hazardous air pollutant. Um, it's, it's pretty toxic, but it works really well for CBD extraction. So... And I just, uh, I want to point out that there's not a lot of crossover. So if I hold a cannabis license and, and that helps me grow regulated THC cannabis. So there aren't a lot that I know of now who are also growing hemp at the same time. Um, because hemp, you don't have to be regulated. I wouldn't want to give up any of my regulated space for an, a crop that doesn't need to be. And so there's not a lot of crossover. Uh, even a company like Mary's Medicinal, yes, they have a... Um, a medicated version and a CBD only version, but those are kind of two different entities within the business. There aren't a lot of growers that are growing both so close in proximity. 
Um, we're going to take maybe one or two more questions here. I just want to point out quick um, that if by the door you have any questions and you don't catch these guys before they leave, my card that's cannabis specific is there as well as a QR code for a general research sheet of a lot of their information, other articles you can read about this kind of stuff, some webinars, general stuff to get you going if you have more basic questions and information. So if anyone needs to scoot, that is by the door. Feel free to grab it. Um, we're going to go down. You've had your hand up for a while. Would you want to identify yourself? No, uh, yeah, you are asking about uh, Washington State specifically, and, and um, um, our dirty little secret is that we don't pest for pesticides. We don't. Um, not a lot of people know that. Um, it's uh, one of my fellow editors. That's his his little uh, bugaboo that he he's um, constantly uh, harping on and, and trying to get fixed. It's a it's a it's a real gap, and it should be fixed. And the legislature needs to do it. Uh, there might be a, yeah, a list of, of uh, allowed pesticides. Yeah, most states do that. I think we do have that. Um, but there's no, it's completely voluntary. Um, there's no testing on it, on it whatsoever. Um, and there, there are, I mean, the labs that exist, most of them can do the, the pesticide testing. It's, it's not cheap, but, but California does it, other states do it. Um, so yeah, we're also um, dealing with a situation with, in Washington state where the state liquor and cannabis board, which has been regulating this from, from day one, um, essentially they kind of threw up their hands when it came to testing and they have um, quietly punted and are transitioning to give the, um, the whole testing area and regulation of same to the state health department because the health department people just simply know, uh, they know health, they know chemicals, they know tests, and the Liquor and Cannabis Board doesn't. Um, so we're in a really weird, funky period right now with, with that. Yeah, like, I'll, let's, we'll talk afterwards. I'll give you plenty of other material, yeah. <laughs> Great. So I think we have time for one more question, and we're going to go with you right here in the front. So from an environmental impact, um, when, you're, when you're going indoors, um, we are relying on all of our municipal systems. And so um, the water supply that they receive is our drinking water supply, and then the wastewater effluent that they uh, discharge to is our wastewater supply. And so um, those wastewater effluents are responsible for, you know, getting, getting those nutrients, um, you know, out of the water, getting the pesticides out of the water, whatever, whatever basically is put in that water, it's going to run off to a wastewater treatment facility who will then treat that water to, you know, wastewater effluent standards. It'll be discharged into a you know, our rivers and streams, and then it's picked up again by another, you know, drinking water um, treatment facility. And so you you still have environmental impacts. They're just a little bit different. And so um, the local, you know, public water treatment facilities are, you know, typically in our state are working with all of their customer customers that discharge to their effluent, you know, treatment system. And so having the cannabis industry, making sure that you guys, you know, as an industry is having good relationships with those municipalities municipalities and being transparent about what they're putting down the drain and then what concentrations and things like that. So the wastewater municipality is then prepared with their treatment system to be able to get those um, values out and get them below, you know, whatever the thresholds are, the regulatory thresholds for wastewater. Cool. Well, it's about 3.34, so I don't want to hold people too late. I want to thank our panelists again for coming today, being great resources of information. Again, if you have more questions, feel free to follow up with me if you don't grab their information, and I can direct you to them. Um, thank you again for showing up. I recommend highly Bruce's book, Weed the People. It's really fun, tons of great information, and if you're looking for a place to really get started, it's a, I highly recommend an introduction to the industry through that book. So thank you, guys. I can talk about this stuff. Yeah.